Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, another special episode today in celebration. Uh, February is Black History Month, and um, we had uh, wanted to uh, celebrate and get the stories of two uh, very prominent physicians uh, within the American College of Emergency Physician family. Um, and just to give a little bit of a, a background on the origins of Black History Month, it actually really started uh, back in 1915, and that's when um, a Harvard, uh, Harvard-trained historian, Carter Woodson, and Minister Jesse Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, um, which was uh, dedicating to research uh, that history. Um, today, that's changed over to the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, or ASALH. Uh, the first uh, Negro History Week is what it was called in 1926, chosen. Um, people ask why February was chosen. It was chosen uh, because the second week of February coincides with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. And so that's where that really started off. And as it evolved over time, eventually becoming Black History Month in 1976 uh, through uh, President Gerald Ford. And so I wanted to bring some stories here. So I've got uh, Dr. Ray Johnson and Dr. Sandra Coker with me today. And we're going to tell some stories, have some conversations um, and, and really, uh, and really kind of dive down on this thing. So Dr. Coker, give us a little bit of your, of your background, of where you practice and, uh, let us know a little bit more about you. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, as mentioned, I am, um, Sandra or Dr. Coker. San- that sounds way too formal, but, <laughs> um, I'm Sandra. I am a, a young second year resident out in the university of Chicago right now, um, born and raised at, um, or born and raised in Houston, Texas, rather. I did all my training in Houston as far as medical school. Um, I did undergrad at the Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Um, so I'm a proud Texan, moved out to Illinois for the first time uh, for residency, enjoying my time here um, and wrapping up, you know, next summer um, and officially transitioning into that attending position as an emergency medicine physician. Um, Along with being a resident physician, I am also the founder of Black Girl White Coat, which is a nonprofit organization that aims to uh, provide Black and Latinx um, students um, scholarship, mentorship, representation, and just some sound guidance um, as far as navigating the waters of getting into academic medicine, uh, as well as the various other healthcare professions. So that's just a little bit about me. Um, I don't want to, I could talk forever about Black or White Coat, but uh, that's a little bit about what we do. I love it. I saw when I, I when uh, all this was coming together, I saw that Black Girl White Coat, and I was like, that is one of the best names of anything <laughs> ever. Um, and now you get to experience both sides of the uh, U.S. extreme weather. Uh, with a combination of Waco, Texas, and now up in Chicago. I'm not sure yes. how excited you are about those nice <laughs> Chicago winters and how excited to get back to uh, Texas eventually. Uh, <laughs> talking with uh, Dr. Ray Johnson as well, and uh, he's one that I've known for a number of years, seen uh, cruising around the um, the uh, ASAP Council and such, and, and so uh, brought him on as well. Dr. Johnson, give us a little background about yourself. Well, thanks, Ryan. I, I have to tell you, it's like, where do you begin? I Uh, So I've been practicing emergency medicine for 38 years. I finished my residency in 1984 and uh, then spent a year as a chief resident at UCLA. So it's been an an incredible ride since then. Um, I think for me, uh, probably a good place to start is going back to really my ancestry. 
Um, I actually am not the first doctor in my family. Turns out my great, 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 somewhere great uh, grandfather was actually a white slave owner who was a physician from, from Great Britain. So I, I did one of those family and me type tree uh, things and found out that I actually have a, I'm actually a descendant of a physician from way, way back, which seems appropriate because when I was in high school, I joined Future Doctors of America Club, having grown up in Connecticut as an army brat. Actually, Air Force brat. My dad was in the military. And so from a very, very uh, young age, I kind of knew I was going to go into the healthcare system and be a, be a physician. Um, I had the great opportunity to uh, uh, grow up in an area where almost everyone who went to my high school was destined to go on to uh, college of some kind. And then it was during the, those years that I actually uh, developed my first mentor. And uh, he was a, a Black gentleman who uh, actually ran a camp during the summers that would bring uh, kids from an impoverished area in the nearby community to together with uh, many of the upper and affluent kids from the community uh, where I actually lived, having grown up in the quote, the projects, which was really interesting. Um, but it was a great uh, opportunity to have a role model that really inspired me. And along with him and my family, really, uh, I think uh, set the course for me to go into the uh, medical field um, having uh, originally chosen to go into pediatrics um, as my uh, area of specialty, I found the light and eventually uh, did a rotation in the emergency department where after that I decided to become a full-time emergency physician. And so it's been great. I actually practice uh, emergency medicine here in Southern California, uh, about an hour north of San Diego. Um, I actually spent a couple of years on the faculty at Stanford about uh, 25 years ago. Um, but because I had a house in Southern California that I couldn't sell, I had to move back down there and actually have been in the private practice of emergency medicine since that time. I've been um, fortunate to have been an oral board examiner uh, for ABEM for about the past 25 years or so. And uh, as a result, they asked me to uh, be interested in joining the board of directors for ABEM. And that's after I served my time as board of directors at ASAP as well. So I've had a lot of uh, leadership experience, um, very, very interested in kind of the um, advocacy world as well. And uh, uh, currently I'm serving as a secretary treasurer on the ABEM board and hopefully presidency is ahead of me in the next year or two. So we'll see how things go, but it's been, it's been a great ride and would love to share more and more about it as much as I can. And I have a son who just finished his residency a couple of years ago in emergency medicine, who's now practicing emergency medicine as well. Fantastic uh, stories and experience. And, uh, you know, I may have a bone to pick with you afterwards about that whole EMS board exam, uh, that thing that I had to go through. But that's a different topic for a different uh, podcast. So let's, uh, Dr. Johnson, let's let's dive into, I mean, practicing um, since 1984. Um, kind of give us an idea, because, um, you know, even rotating the next question with Dr. Coker, my, my class of 2003 was the first a medical school class to be 50, 50 men and women uh, for our for our program. Um, and, you know, the rest of the country went 50, 50 um, just a few years ago. And but you were actually very, very early um, into what at that point was a relatively actually very much so a white profession. Um, and, you know, Norman Rockwell really kind of even, you know, my experience here, you're not old enough to be a doctor. Um, you know, these things, the expectation that that, that old Santa Claus looking uh, Caucasian fellow taking care of everybody kind of walk through your experiences when you got into medicine, those early years and how you've seen it evolve uh, over the last over the years. 
Well, it, it's been really interesting. I, I would say, um, and there have been uh, many times during my career where you, you have to wonder why did I even choose to go into this specialty? Um, but, you know, I do think that um, uh, patients don't choose their emergency position. So um, if they believe they have an emergency and they show up at the door, I think they really, what they really want and what they expect is uh, compassionate and competent care. And so I think for me, it's always been my belief that um, you can overcome really uh, many, many barriers if you uh, recognize that if you can meet what the expectations of patients are, then they will accept you for, uh, for whoever you are. And it's been really my experience that uh, when I take care of any patient, regardless of uh, their race or their ethnicity or their religion, um, what I try and make it very clear is that I'm here to give them the best care and the most compassionate care that I can give them. And while there have been on, on rare occasion pushback uh, from some patients, I would say for the, for the vast majority of patients during my career, um, there's never been an issue of being a black physician taking care of a, a, a non-black patient. Um, I would say that uh, the, one of the things that's really I find fascinating is when I actually take care of a patient who's black, um, they're so happy to see another black physician and sometimes catches me off guard that they're so excited to see a, another black physician that uh, it, it brings a smile to my face that, that I can that I can be there and really uh, show that, yes, there are black physicians and uh, I'm here to deliver that same compassion and competent care for them as well. Um, so I believe that uh, really the key really is uh, you, we can overcome those barriers, uh, just being um, well-trained and uh, and really showing that that compassion to everyone we take care of. Yeah, absolutely. And and as we drive uh, with an ASEP and actually as a profession in general to uh, to look more like our patients, you know, to reflect, you know, the patients that are coming through our doors. And that is part of that diversity and inclusion that we that we're stressing and, and, and pushing for. And Dr. Coker, you know, you're relatively young into this profession. I mean, still resident up in uh, Chicago, but clearly uh, have a really deep knowledge and passion um, for for the promotion um, of, of, of black uh, black physicians and female physicians, um, kind of give us your where you see things and how did you get that passion and and what do you see in in terms of uh, that building that future? Yeah, um, first of all, I want to say that how impressed I am with Dr. Johnson. Like that's a crazy uh, crazy journey you've taken. You you've experienced so much, and I just aspire to be like you in the future. So. It's an honor to be in the same, you know, podcast, being the same kind of virtual room with you. So just want to acknowledge you uh, there. Um, but exactly like you're saying, so my interest and my personal experiences with this, the lack of diversity in healthcare, um, I think were first realized by me in Waco at Baylor University, uh, a predominantly white um, academic institution where we actually are, I mean, Baylor is, is pretty well known for getting kids into medical school and to nursing schools and all the pre-health things. Uh, we have pretty good programs there. Um, but I struggled so much uh, being the first doctor in my family, um, being the first, uh, being a first generation Nigerian American, coming from a household in which nobody had done what I was trying to do before, especially in America and in our US schooling system. Um, I didn't have family members or friends at the time who I could look up to or go to or um, even just ask for, you know, what would you do here or what would this look like? I didn't really have that. 
So uh, I Googled my way through college. I Googled my way through my requisite, my prerequisites. I Googled my way to, you know, what do I need to become a doctor? I knew very early on that, you know, this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I didn't really have any solid advice. We had advisors, but nobody really came from a background that was similar to mine. Um, a lot of my fellow students had family lineages that were amazing that I could only aspire to create and have for my children down the line. But at the time, it just wasn't something that was in place for me. So I didn't have those same resources or opportunities. Um, and I especially, most importantly, didn't have the exposure. Um, so, you know, luckily, you know, with a lot of hard work and also great advocates and allies along the path um, during my undergraduate experience, I did make it through. And I also did uh, get into my top choice medical school, which was McGovern Medical School, University of Texas at Houston. Um, and once I got that acceptance letter, I celebrated, of course, I cried. I also quit the job that I was working during that gap year, <laughs> right on the spot. Um, and I, I kind of just, you know, had this realization that, wow, I, I, I made it pretty much, right? The likelihood of getting through medical school and getting into your residency is, is, is pretty okay at that point, once you, once you get the, the, the leg in, the, the step in. Um, but I didn't want other students who looked like me and who didn't have the exposure, who didn't have the family lineages, who didn't have the resources. Um, I didn't want them to go through college in this day and age, having to Google their way through um, and having to kind of guess and not really having that guidance, you know, lacking sponsorship, lacking mentorship, lacking um, exposure to clinical experiences. I wanted to see how I could help um, in that regard. And that's where the birth of Black Girl White Coat came about with simply the intention just to let other people who look like me trying to get to positions that I was um, on my way towards, you know, what to expect, uh, the hardships and the obstacles that are there <laughs> creeping around every corner um, and ways to overcome, you know, challenges that you might face down the line. And so that, that sparked my interest. And as I got, you know, as I got into medical school, started to study, started to explore um, my own relationships professionally, um, included in mentor, uh, mentorship-wise as well, I gravitated to uh, research that focused on healthcare disparities, as well as um, the inequities and the, the disparities that we saw in uh, medical education as well. And that tied into my interest with um, Black or White Coat, as well as what I want to do in the future as far as DEI work on the academic um, level. Um, and now continuing into residency, I continue to work with uh, EMRA, which is our uh, Residence Association for Emergency Medicine as the incoming chair for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Um, and our focus is you know, trying to get students from HBCU uh, medical schools more interested in emergency medicine, um, while also trying to advise them and offer guidance in regards to um, some obstacles and you know, challenges that they'll face along the line as well. Um, so that's kind of a little background about my, you know, my personal experiences and how that shaped my interest today. And as far as, as experience that I'm having, experiences that I'm having now as a young black female physician uh, practicing now in the emergency department, um, I think a, a huge reason why I chose University of Chicago 
is that I know that we serve primarily the South side of Chicago. So I know my patients are going to look like me. I know my patients probably uh, will be very grateful to have a physician that looks like them. Um, and I still am taken aback and definitely grounded and humbled when I have the fit, when I have the patient who's you know in their 70s or 80s and sees me for the first time and just you know they're struggling to catch their breath but they just mutter out the words like you're a black like I'm so happy to see you you're a black physician I've never seen somebody who looks like you doing this before I'm so proud of you um, I look at you like you're my daughter and I, I'm just I'm just overwhelmed you know with joy that you're in this position like those kind of experiences happen more often than I ever thought they would. And they're definitely something that I, uh, I never take for granted and always causes me to pause for a second. Um, on the flip side of that, I have had experiences where I am met with um, resistance by my patients because I'm not what they expect to see. I'm not who they expect to see. For some, I'm too young. Um, for some, I am just a woman and that alone <laughs> is, uh, not good enough. And for others, it's a combination of those things, plus the fact that I'm Black. Um, that seems to be met with resistance from patients, um, typically older patients in um, not at our South Side location. So dealing with these different interactions sometimes in the same shift uh, takes a toll mentally, um, but just further emphasizes to me, the importance of the work I do in equipping more um, Black and Latinx um, future healthcare professionals in, you know, doing more research and studying more about healthcare disparities, um, and then also just getting our faces out there and just increasing our presence in these spaces. That's just so needed, um, and that's that's what I that's what my my work entails. You know, more than just clinical. I wanted, and actually, wow. both kind of teased <laughs> uh, teased my next set of questions um, because I know, especially Dr. Coker, with you know, my wife's a is a physician as well, a med peds physician, and you know that constant conversations about the fact as as females not necessarily identified as a physicians and, and ongoing challenges, especially when she was in residency. Um, I've got a beard. One of the main reasons I've got a beard is the fact that people didn't trust me as a physician because I look too young. Uh, so it added the years I needed to be to have some uh, credibility. Uh, but we know, I mean, everything going on r right now, uh, over, well, it's 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 long term. It's just been going on. But of course, recently we've had a lot of the uh, concerns with uh, and, and the debates with uh, BLM and the kneeling and, and all of those things. So there's clearly still significant challenges in this country um, around the world, but especially in this country associated with the color of your skin. And um, and I know that there's no way, and, and actually Dr. Coke, you even hinted to it some, some of that resistance. What are some of those challenges that you faced? And, and Dr. Johnson, especially interested, you know, that transition from 84 to 94 to 04 to 14 to, you know, where we are now, in terms of some of those challenges that you face, not because of who you are, but because of the melanin, the melanin you contain, um, I, I just want to see some of those challenges and realities that are out there. Because unfortunately, I think that that many out there just assume that 
the experience is just like what they had, which may not have those to have challenges, may not have a just random unnecessary roadblocks in the way. Um, talk about some of those experiences. And, and Dr. Coker, I'll, I'll start with you. you. You talked about some in your initial, in, in just that last answer. What are some of those challenges that you face being a, uh, a physician that's a, that just happens to be, to be a black woman, whether associated with medicine or not? Yeah. Um, I would say one thing in like, when you meet, when I have those, albeit rare, um, relatively rare experiences where I met with just like outright resistance from patients due to um, me being a black female physician who comes in the room and I introduce myself as Dr. Coker and that catches them by surprise. Uh, when I met with resistance, they, it's usually in the form of them not trusting my clinical decision-making, not trusting anything that comes out of my mouth after Dr. Coker. Um, and the silent but ever so present microaggressions that are then, you know, pervasive throughout the rest of our interaction. Um, it does not affect the, uh, the quality of clinical, of, of like, you know, care that I give them. Uh, but it's something that I note and I acknowledge and that it takes extra strength for me to work through. But the, the quality of care that I give is the same for all of my patients, at least I would like to think. Um, however, the mental toll that it begins to take I'm only two years into this, right? I experienced a little bit as a medical student, but I kind of expected it as a medical student. I don't know if I would be super comfortable with a medical student, you know, talking to me. But um, two years into residency, uh, the mental toll that those little microaggressions and those little, you know, fights that you have to put up with when you're met with these kind of, uh, you know, these kind of patient interactions. I feel like that's what I'm more worried about in our up and coming physicians, including myself, you know, as we go, as we progress through our career. Um, what, is, what are those microaggressions and what do those like, what do those challenges that you, you face, you know, when you go to work that your white coworkers and white co-residents aren't facing? Like, how does that on the long, in the long run affect who you are as a physician, affect your longevity, affect your happiness and your wellness and, you know, um, your state of mind when you come to work each day, when you're trying to do the right things for all your patients and treat everybody equally and come in, you know, with a blank, fresh slate and treat everybody, you know, to the best of your ability. In the long run, it sucks. In the long run, it, it hurts. In the long run, it, it's, it's exhausting. Proving your worth in every space that you're in is exhausting. Um, proving your intelligence and the fact that you worked as hard as anybody else, maybe even harder to get to where you are, is exhausting. Um, and, uh, you know, going forward and like as I continue to uh, grow in my leadership positions and, you know, DEI boards and all that good stuff, um, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at how do we, how do we, how do we help our physicians that are in these positions? How do we improve their wellness? What extra care are we taking? How do we address microaggressions in the workplace from colleagues? How do we have colleagues feel empowered to stand up when they witness that kind of thing happening to their um, Black coworkers? Um, and how are we supporting and retaining Black faculty and, and staff? Uh, because we're we're, we're tired, you know? We're, <laughs> sometimes we get beat up more, you know, on a shift, you know, in, then we've been beat up like the previous week alone. 
Um, so, so what are we doing to help us in that regard? So that's kind of how my, my experiences are shaping my, like how I'm changing the way I think and changing what I'm focusing on now um, in my professional space. Um, but I'm sure Dr. Uh, Johnson has way more to add in his experiences. He's seen a lot. I, I think what really is amazing is uh, we, we are, you could be my daughter easily. And throughout the, in that generation between us, um, things really haven't changed that much, which is really probably a sad statement. Um, I, I think uh, for me, uh, some of the greatest challenges have actually been uh, not with patients, but with colleagues. Um, certainly when I finished uh, my residency, I was pretty much the only black emergency, in fact, was the only black emergency physician in my class. Um, but then even going out into the community uh, where I practiced for about 10 years, I was pretty much the only black physician, not only in my first group, but uh, in, in emergency medicine in my area. Um, and it was just a really interesting experience to actually get a lot of animosity, I think, from some of my uh, fellow, not emergency physicians, but certainly my internal medicine colleagues and surgical colleagues who I would have to call up, talk about the patients to get them admitted. And you could always tell right off the bat that, uh, especially once they knew who I was, it was one of those, um, there was an expectation somehow that, at least for me, I, I felt there was an expectation that they were setting me up for failure, which I think only just drove me to try and be better and better at what I did uh, so that I never had to ever have them expect that I would fail in their eyes. So um, there was always that challenge of, I always felt, and I, and I agree with uh, Dr. Coker that it does wear, and it, it takes a lot of wear and tear and when you always feel like you're in the spotlight and, and you're being set up for failure. Um, so I, I would say for certainly the first uh, decade of my career, um, I did have to work harder and I did uh, have to, felt like I was making a greater effort than many of my other colleagues to have to always prove myself uh, that I was uh, adequately trained. Um, I often get the question when I go see patients early on in my career, and maybe less so now because I look a lot older. Um, they don't ask me, how old are you anymore? And, but I still get the question, where did you go to school? And so I wonder, where do I go to school? I mean, really? I never heard that question asked of any of my fellow white colleagues, you know? So that's just interesting. Um, uh, and I have, I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm happy to share that information. It just seems like you really need to know that. I mean, I'm a residency trained in emergency medicine, you know, so it should be enough, but uh, often felt like it was never enough. Uh, and um, and that's been, I think that's been a real uphill battle uh, throughout most of my career. When I first finished my residency in emergency medicine, I was told that most emergency physicians would never work more than about 10 years in the specialty, that it was just too hard, too grueling, uh, the hours are too bad. Um, but now 38 years into my career in emergency medicine and still working 10 shifts a month, um, I can tell you that, um, uh, uh, the challenges haven't been physical. The challenges have been more emotional and uh, and mental challenges. Uh, but I think that the best part of it is that I've learned how to be resilient. Uh, I've learned how to sometimes turn some of those uh, negative things into positive things. As I mentioned, I've been involved in advocacy. Uh, I was able to get involved uh, in some of our state political activity um, early on in my career, um, and that resulted in, and I think, joining organizations that have really been forward-thinking in terms of how we look at um, racial issues, and in, in certainly here in California, but even nationally, um, being exposed to other um, uh, underrepresented minorities who are in the political arena, who've been certainly role models for me, if not mentors, uh, have been has been extremely helpful. Um, I was once told that if you really want uh, any power in America, you have to have uh, political power first. 
And so getting involved in from the political perspective and seeing how one gains political power um, has been extremely uh, insightful for me. Uh, and uh, I highly recommend uh, for those young physicians who are out there, including my son, um, being involved in advocacy and in, in medicine uh, has been extremely, and will be extremely valuable going forward in, in your career and learning uh, how to, I think, uh, get around roadblocks and some of those obstacles that we confront on a political basis. I love how you mentioned the, you know, using the challenge as the motivation, you know, things that we heard here of a lot of the best athletes out there is, is, is that chip on the shoulder of, of kind of always watching over their shoulder and using that as motivation to be, to do more, to be better, to, to work harder. Um, and, and you, you see that, you see that a ton. And I, I like how you use that as a coping because it is, and, and Dr. Coker, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it, in medicine, especially emergency medicine, it's not it's not the big bites. It's just this constant constant little chipping away, uh, like at a statue um, that, that eventually burns eventually burns us out. Um, and especially if that is compounded, um, you know, in your work setting or wherever it may be. But let's let's take that um, that angle and say, look into the future and say, how do we moving forward um, build the ranks of uh, black emergency physicians um, to continue to pave that way and work towards a profession that looks like our patients. Um, so let's look into that crystal ball and what we need to do uh, to move forward. And Dr. Johnson, I'll start with you. Wow, great question. I, I, I think that it's almost impossible to be a black physician in America and not be doing something to try and improve the pipeline uh, to get more black physicians in, in our, certainly in our specialty, but in healthcare in general. Um, and I'm already involved in some activities doing that, but I would say if there is one word that I would use that would be, for me, the word that is critically important, it would be mentorship. And I, it, one of the things that I think is extremely important and valuable for the next generation is to see people who are at my level, uh, in my point, my career, where I can say to those young physicians and physician wannabes that I'm here to help you get there. Um, I think I never, I had one person in my, in my whole life that I felt that way about, but that one person made such a difference for me. And if I could have, if I could give every single black youngster out there, one, um, one person uh, who could be a mentor for them to just kind of be able to lean into them and say, uh, I can help you get to where you want to go. That would be that would be my greatest dream. Um, I think uh, with a lot of DEI issues right now, I think uh, that we are starting to see some movement uh, in the um, pre-medical arena and even before pre-medical arena, trying to reach um, minorities in high school and earlier to try and inspire them to look at the healthcare uh, industry as a, as a uh, career. Um, I think uh, one of the problems we have is that there many of these potential future physicians find there are many barriers to getting into the getting the pre-med requisites, um, getting the requirements that are necessary to really get them into a, a good undergraduate education environment and then onto medical school. Um, it is a lot of work. Thank God for Google. They didn't have Google when I was coming up. <laughs> and uh, you basically did it on your own. And it didn't happen. Um, I, I remember the only reason why I went to the college I went to is because I just happened to attend a, a open house in New York City, um, and a bunch of my fellow classmates from Connecticut were going into New York City to this open house about this particular college, 
And I thought, okay, I'll go along because I didn't know what I was going to do after high school. And uh, I knew I was going to move to California. That was the only thing I knew. So this happened to be Stanford University that was having this open house. And I went to it and I said, oh, well, I guess I'll apply. And I got in. So I was shocked and amazed. And, and But thank God. Um, uh, when I was at Stanford, I met a physician, a, a physician there uh, who was doing research and sleep research. His name was William Dement, who was actually went on to become very world renowned in sleep research. And he was one of those uh, individuals. He was a white physician who took it to his responsibility to increase the number of underrepresented minorities in the healthcare system. And so he became uh, an advisor for me and basically said to me, you're never going to look back. You will take this to your mantle will be to go forward. Uh, and if you have any questions or concerns, you come talk to me. And uh, it was just that one individual um, was uh, enough of an inspiration for me to, uh, to continue to pursue my career in, in medicine. Uh, it got me involved in doing research at an early age. And, and again, I think that having those visionaries, those people along the way who can actually, I think, grab you by the shirt tail and say, no, 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 you're not going to go into sports. You're going to come and be a doctor, <laughs> I think is, is uh, one of the ways you, you open that pipeline up. Um, so I, I really, I encourage, uh, I'm so excited to see things that, uh, for example, Dr. Coker's doing, I'm so excited to see some of these efforts that really were, didn't, did not exist when I, uh, finished my, uh, residency or finished medical school. And, uh, but I think there are pathways now that are opening up that we are beginning to see, um, interested, uh, young students who are looking to go into medicine. That it's just thrilling to see that. And I think, it, I hope that it continues. Yeah. Dr. Coker, you uh, uh, you clearly, and I mean, even in the answers you gave prior, we're talking about the fact that you got you basically blazed your own path and looking for the, you know, and and just as Dr. Johnson had mentioned, uh, you know, having that person to to look up to, you're already you you you're blazing a path, and so now you're you're uh, actually marking the path uh, with uh, uh, with black girl white coat. So talk about your, talk about that, your vision of saying, how do we take steps forward, positive steps forward, uh, with, uh, with, uh, black emergency physician? Yeah. Um, something I think, I mean, I agree with everything Dr. Johnson said, mentorship and pipeline programs are definitely the way of the future. It's definitely the way we're going to get, uh, more, you know, underrepresented minority kids, students involved and interested and exposed to careers such as uh, being a physician or any other sort of healthcare um, professional. Um, another another way I want to look at it is from the top down. So I want, I would challenge, or I think that there needs to be more focus on the recruitment and retention of Black, uh, Latinx, LGBTQ faculty in emergency medicine, you know, academic institutions, programs, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think when we're able to, as, you know, physicians in training or medical students, when we're able to see that that's there at a program, when we're able to see that that is something that, you know, this emergency medicine academic institution, program, department, whatever you want to call it, values um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and exemplifies this through who they hire, um, I think that is a great starting point. And I think that's kind of where we also need to focus right now as well. How are we recruiting these um, marginalized professionals? Um, how are we retaining them? How are we supporting them while they're here? So yes, we bring them in. Yes, we want to increase our diverse 
numbers. Yes, we want to hit this quota. Um, but when they get here, they're bringing important work to the table. They're doing important work. Um, they're, you know, meeting the quota that we have to meet, but what are we doing to support them? How are we supporting their research? How are we supporting their programs that they wanna be run? Do they wanna start a mentorship program? Do they wanna start a shadowing program? Do they wanna start a pipeline program? What can we as an academic institution do to support these young leaders or um, this new faculty that we've now brought on to our program? And then you also, you know, look further and you're recruiting a more diverse um, residency class, more diverse residency programs. Okay, so what are we doing when we get those, you know, residents, how are we supporting them while they're there? How are we, you know, discussing with them alongside their white colleagues? How are we discussing microaggressions? How are we discussing racism in the workplace? How are we discussing cultural competency when we're a county hospital that serves all, you know, mostly black and Latinx um, patients and there is just numerous instances of, you know, lack of cultural competency and um, kind of ignorance there that's at play. How are we discussing this openly amongst our residency program so that we are helping our Black and other underrepresented minority um, physicians in training feel supported, feel safe, feel secure, and feel like their academic, their academic and clinical training isn't, you know, at risk or isn't taking a backseat to anything else or isn't being jeopardized by anything or overshadowed by um, other problems. Um, so I, I think that we all, we need to focus on, you know, recruiting and retaining, supporting um, faculty, underrepresented minority faculty, as well as physicians in training. Um, and then that just kind of continues to go down the line to medical students. And then that continues to build the interest in pipeline programs where we're, you know, we are at least available and visible so that students that are in high school can finally see that, okay, I see this, you know, young academic physician who's in this position, who looks like me, who has successfully, you know, been able to retain and keep this job and be successful in this job, still has the capacity and the support from their institution to reach out to me and to work with me and to mentor me. This is something that I want to do too. This is something that I ought to look into too. This is a space that exists and is open and is available to me. Um, if we start from the top down, I think we'll, we'll see that trickle down effect. Uh, and I think we'll see it um, at, an, at, a, at a great rate, at a, at a good rate. Um, mentorship is something that I think we've already understood needs to happen. Um, but in order to get solid mentors, we have to support the mentors, right? We have to put them in positions where they have the capacity to mentor. They have the capacity to reach out and to help. We can't dump DEI projects on our only black physician in our program because they're the only black physician. They can't pour from an empty cup. And if, if we're constantly asking for you know, these projects and this work to be churned out from them, then they're not gonna be able to mentor. They're not gonna be able to be who you want them to be for the residents and for the medical students and for that pipeline program and for the rest of you know, uh, the DNI numbers that you're looking to reach. We need the support um, even after the recruitment, even after the hire, you know, you know, the onboarding, uh, the support, support has to be there too. And we'll see the mentorship and the trickle down effect happen after that, I, I believe. Talking with Dr. Sandra Coker and Dr. Ray Johnson um, as part of the special episode of ASAP Frontline for Black History Month. Um, how can folks, uh, Dr. Coker, how can folks get in touch with you? Give us the contact for, um, we're going we're gonna to keep this pipeline moving now. 
Um, how can folks get in touch with you with the Black Girl White Code? And, and if they've got any questions, want to contact uh, and, and ask questions? Yeah, so um, I would, we're always looking for support, always looking for new ways to collaborate with like-minded organizations and as well as individuals. Um, at Black or White Coat, we're always giving out scholarships and academic resources. We're looking to give our Black or White Coat scholars opportunities to shadow and get clinical experience as well. So if you are interested in any one of the great 50 states of the United States of America, we're willing to take you on and to uh, you know, take, take whatever you offer. Um, you can reach me uh, in for all things related to Black Girl White Coat at drsandrainfo at gmail.com, or you can visit blackgirlwhitecoat.org, and uh, there's a connect page there, and it's really easy to send an email to our uh, main Black Girl White Coat email address there as well. Um, so either one of those work, and then if you want to contact me or reach me for anything else, um, outside of black or white coat, my email address is sandracoker94 at gmail.com. Um, and I respond to email pretty quickly. Um, I also want to plug in for black or white coat. We are a social media based organization. We are not tied to one state or one place. Um, so another great way to interact with black or white coat is through Twitter. Um, and on Twitter, we are at underscore BGWC underscore. And on Instagram, we are at underscore black or white coat underscore. All right, Dr. Johnson, how about you? <laughs> well, uh, the only social media I engage in is email. <laughs> <laughs> so you can certainly reach me at my email address at rjohnmd at gmail. But uh, certainly I encourage all of you who are practicing emergency medicine out there to please visit the ABEM website. Um, just tremendous information there on how to stay certified, um, which I believe the organization really exemplifies the setting the highest standard for the specialty. And um, I've been extremely proud to be a part of the organization. And uh, I think setting that high, highest, highest standard and, uh, and part of that highest standard is also diversity. And so please feel free and contact me through ABEM as well. One of the things we love to do is all of the ABEM uh, board members do get to travel across the country and give uh, talks to all of the residency programs. And um, so we are tremendously always trying to encourage uh, getting um, those physicians who are still in residency training, getting them involved uh, early on and, and really bringing the message of setting that high standard. So um, I'm very proud of that. And so you reach me, please feel free to reach out with any questions. Absolutely. And I very much appreciate both of uh, y'all's time. Um, you know, and, and interestingly with this weekend with me down here in uh, Daytona for the Daytona 500, we will have the uh, this Sunday, the first uh, uh, black race director uh, at the Daytona 500, which is on Hamilton as uh, this in uh, a wonderful rising leader within uh, NASCAR. So, um, you know, continuing to look forward to uh, continued advancements and opportunities uh, for everybody, no matter no matter how much melanin you have in your skin, um, that opportunity uh, for greatness and, and to achieve what you want to achieve. And as for me, you can contact me at rstantonasap.org, rstantonasap.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter. I encourage you to uh, check out the podcast, subscribe on whatever platform you like. Uh, so you're getting every weekly episode. Yes, we do 52 plus per year. Um, so make sure that you're uh, staying up to date. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. <laughs>